You may be busy doing something while you listen to this podcast, but you're never too busy to eat healthy if you eat Vite Ramen. This podcast is sponsored by Vite Ramen. Show support for a sponsor that supports Moore's Law is Dead at the link in the description. And if you do, make sure you use offer code BROKENSILICON. And you can also support Moore's Law is Dead if you need Windows keys or software at cdkeyoffer.com. If you go there, also use the code BROKENSILICON for 25% off Windows keys or die shrink for 3 percent off everything else on the website all right now let's get on with the show Welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom, and today I am joined by, well, one of those guests that left such a good impression, if I'm being honest, that he managed to get into the uh, into the, into the the show twice in a year, and the first year you came on it. But, you know, it's because there's so many, well, as we come to the close of a year, I try to think about what episodes can we do that like kind of ramp things up. And there's been a lot of legal questions around the end of this year <laughs> that I've been wanting to get to. But before I get into it, um, why don't you, you know, people can go to the previous episode if they want to hear all of your backstory, but as, you know, as briefly as you want to be like, tell people who you are. Sure. Well, I'm Rick Hogue. I, uh, I run a law firm ostensibly when I'm practicing law, but I also run a YouTube channel called the Hogue Law YouTube channel and a show called Virtual Legality where we talk about the business and law of all sorts of software technology and video game stuff. I'm a big time gamer. I've been my whole career. Uh, and so not only do I have a book of business that has some game companies and some people that help make games and, and more serious software, I also talk about it a lot on, on YouTube and on Twitter. So I think that's where most people know me from at this point. Certainly Elon and Twitter have kept me, mm-hmm. <laughs> kept me with uh, plenty of topics to cover. Epic and Apple and Google never stop. And the big one this year, Microsoft and Activision. Uh, the deal that people think just won't ever close, but I would remind them that they said it would take up to 18 months when they announced it. They knew there was going to be some regulatory conversations mm-hmm. to be had. Yeah, it's funny that I, I saw that pop up on your YouTube channel about Elon Musk and Twitter. And <laughs> I was just thinking now, like if you were to make like a word cloud for like an AI generated title to get lots of opinionated videos out of, Elon Musk buys Twitter is probably a really good way to just generate tons of news. It's it's it's, it's absolutely it's it's wild times we're living in. Let me say that it is lots of stuff up in the air, especially on the technology side of things, which is a lot of fun for me. When I started the channel, it was always well, what if news just stops? What if we don't have anything to talk about? That has not proven to be the problem. <laughs> no, I I know what you mean. When I, when I started my YouTube channel. I would like try to plan out subjects weeks ahead of time. There'd be, you know, this is when I was new. So I was like probably excited to talk about tons of stuff I hadn't yet, but I would like pre-record like three videos, have them drop during the week. And I was like, oh man, I've got to make sure I've got this ad. I got to place in a video in a month. I've got to make sure I've got this planned out. And it just took me like two years to slowly become comfortable with the idea that like, there's always going to be something you can talk about. If you need to get an ad in a video, if you don't, if you're we'll worried, <laughs> yeah, if you're worried, there's going to be a week where, you know, you have nothing to talk about. That's never going to happen. 
So, and, and you just slowly realize it. That has proven to be the case for me too. It's still a little bit harrowing sometimes if you got a morning and you're like, I really do want to do a video today. I don't know exactly what I'm going to do, but it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. All right. So Crass writes in, just like people camp, they support us on Patreon. He says, not a question, but Rick, I do just want to thank you for the 40 plus video series you've been doing on Microsoft attempts to acquire Activision. It's really nice to see the entire process, all the ups and the downs broken down into digestible chunks that I can regularly find on your channel. And I thought we could start there, even though it really wasn't a planned subject ahead of time. (laughs) uh, I, you know, and this has been one of those years where I've paid less attention to console, more to PC, because there's been so much PC hardware news. But I looked around and it seems like there is something going on. And when you came on before, we did talk about both the NVIDIA ARM acquisition, which did not go through. Right. And now uh, Microsoft's attempt to buy Activision. What would you say the status is of, uh, well, of that acquisition? Yeah, so when this gets announced in January, we've talked about it before, they give themselves until the middle of next year uh, to get the deal done, which was always a signal that there would be some regulatory investigation. And nothing there has truly surprised some of the vociferousness of things like the United Kingdom and their competition and markets authority going out with a lot of interesting statements and Twitter threads and things like that. That's a little bit of a surprise, but they're doing political things. These are all kind of political bodies and agencies. So that's, that's okay. Uh, but nothing is truly surprised on that front with the exception of Sony really deciding to go to the mattresses against the deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think what really happened here was you have the regulatory bodies in the FTC in the United States, the CMA in the United Kingdom, and the European Commission in the European Union start to signal that they want to be aggressive against tech companies, which we saw before this deal was even announced, and then start to signal it in other deals and in other ways that I think Sony started to get the feeling like they could they could press to have the whole deal scuttled. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, Sony has decided to go all in on that. The most recent statement that we read from them was, Essentially, any purchase of Activision Blizzard King uh, runs the risk of subsuming the entire gaming industry, and it must be stopped. by any company, not just Microsoft. That's I believe the last sentence in Sony's conclusion statements to the UK was, uh, it, it, "Unless you want to risk the gaming industry," I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, it, Activision must be independently owned, mm-hmm. um, and so Sony went all out and that's an escalation over the course of like four or five messages that we were able to watch them in terms of responding to brazil and then responding to the uk initially and then again to the uk and now again to the uk uh and so sony thinks that there's a there there Uh, especially in the uk right yeah so they've gotten the strongest response from the uk when the uk put forward what we call their phase one decision where they determined that there was probably enough to go into a deeper investigation which was always to be expected for a 70 billion dollar deal that is just leagues more expensive and valuable than any industry deal ever in the history of video gaming, Mm -hmm. uh, that it was always going to be expected for them to have in-depth review. The way that they announced it and the adoption of some of Sony's talking points, I think suggested to Sony and the higher-ups over there that they could take a run at the whole thing. And again, Sony makes 30% of the revenues that Call of Duty makes selling on its console for nothing, give or take. Mm -hmm. They made a PlayStation 5 and Call of Duty sells into that, and they get 30% of the dollars that you or I spend on purchasing or playing or getting battle passes or whatever on the Call of Duty franchise on their consoles. So they're going to try to defend that. Uh, and some of their arguments, I think, are, I use the legal term specious, without merit, hollow. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, they're very vociferous about them, and I think they're causing Microsoft a little bit of heartburn. And... Uh, you have the leaks coming out from this weekend at both the political article and the Bloomberg article mm-hmm. talking about the fact 
that certain people within the FTC think that they're likely to sue to block the deal. That gets a little bit dicey in terms of interpretation because if you're going to go ask for consents, if you're, you're going to go ask for concessions from Microsoft, you actually have to first find that there's an illegal problem. Generally speaking, that means you're going to draft a complaint. It's just very opaque as to whether we're looking at a legitimate leak that they're likely to sue, whether it's a controlled leak and the FTC is leveraging negotiation points. There's all sorts of points between here and there. But suffice to say, what we can pretty much tell is that the FTC is unlikely to just let it go through, uh, which mm-hmm. I think was basically off the table. I think even the last time we talked about this, uh, when Microsoft was going on its PR tour saying, hey, of course we'd be willing to commit to put Call of Duty on the Sony. Uh, We'll be willing to talk about labor commitments. We'll be willing to talk about all these other things, which was really a Microsoft PR tour to say, um, these are the concessions we'd be willing to negotiate. I I thought all those arguments, and I always do find those types of arguments that companies sometimes make hilarious, because I'm sorry, legally the question isn't if you'll be nice. The question is if a company should be able to do this in the first place. Yeah. In the future, you might not be nice. Right. Like it'd be like it'd be like giving the president like more powers. And he's like, but which I know that I'm saying this out loud. We did that. And he's like, but I'll be good with the powers. Yeah, that's not the issue. The issue is a future president might not be. Yeah. You always get into that conversation with regulatory bodies. And I don't want to sit here and say that they're you know completely unmoored or anything like that. But they are at least trying to expand the traditional interpretation of what antitrust law should be looking at. Uh, and so when you talk about these things, the, the promise I can't give, this is very lawyerly, mm-hmm. I know, the promise I can't give to my viewers or, or listeners or anything else is that I can guarantee you the FTC won't sue because nothing is stopping crazy, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you might disagree with that characterization, and I'm not really trying to commit to the FTC being crazy necessarily, but nothing is going to stop them from running up the flagpole if they want to. I cannot mm-hmm. promise you that these four commissioners aren't going to say, hey, let's give it a run, right? And And so... That is always going to be out there, even if I can make 48 videos now in that playlist and say, here are the weaknesses of this particular case. Here's how it wouldn't be a problem in normal Mm -hmm. parlance. They're defining the markets a little bit weird in order to get to that place. They actually have to find that Game Pass is not a substitute for buying games at its own market. There's a whole bunch of things that don't really line up there, Uh, but they could try it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And while I think that's a loser, if Microsoft wants to fight it and send it to court, um, they could try it. And so we don't know what we don't know as to what they're thinking about in terms of politics. I still would say the most likely outcome is that they are positioning themselves for leverage, that all of the regulators, the three that we're most concerned about, UK, Europe, and the United States, are looking to have concessions uh, that Mm -hmm. relate to things potentially like Game Pass availability or pricing, that relate to things like xCloud and Azure availability or pricing for that availability, things like um, uh, Game Pass pricing, whatever that might look like, those kinds of things that they might otherwise be worried about and that Microsoft has somewhat signaled that they'd be willing to give. I still think that's the most likely, but I can't promise it. Lawyers can't promise things, unfortunately, people. And that's on the Microsoft side. That's also on the FTC side and the Activision side. A lot of folks like to come into my comments and say, well, these lawyers are highly paid and they're super smart and they must know what's going to happen. It's like, they're not. Well, they can't prognosticate. They're also competing against other lawyers. So. <laughs> they are also really smart, highly paid lawyers. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, no, you always would ever have, if, you, if you're thinking about that boardroom conversation at Microsoft HQ back in January, it's like, no, we think we have the better part of it. We don't have a monopoly position in the gaming market. We don't have the leadership position in hardware console sales. Uh, cloud gaming doesn't really exist yet. We don't think that Call of Duty tips the scales on that, that kind of thing. You can give that advice to Satya Nadella and Phil Spencer, and you still have to say, but... Hey, you know, Lena Khan at the FTC is saying, oh, we want to sue every tech company on earth. 
Microsoft has a name. Microsoft is known mm-hmm. in antitrust circles, uh, and so they might decide to try to make an example of us, whether it's with warrant or not. So, yeah, and what I find, one thing that immediately sticks out when you're talking about, like Sony going to the UK, is when I when we were talking earlier this year about the NVIDIA ARM acquisition, I think I just, uh, uh, a switch flipped in my head where I went, oh, I don't think this is going through when I realized like the EU was also suing because it, like it's such a time sensitive deal buying a, you know, buying a, a CPU related company. Like if you don't have that IP, if you don't have the patents and all that now, then what's, you can't wait five, 10 years to litigate to get the tech you need that it'll be outdated by the time you get that. And, you know, Samsung, Apple, multiple companies really didn't want NVIDIA to get ARM. Yep. And so it, it, they would just drag this out then. They could just waste five years litigating in America, then the UK, then Brazil. The, and like, I think that there's less of a time sensitivity to a video game company. There is. There, no, there's no question. But still, once you see that Sony's like, okay, well, now we're going to bet on Brazil. That's a, I don't know. That's where you start seeing the huge weakness of any of these mega acquisitions if you actually have an enemy in the other side. Right. Well, it is notable that unlike NVIDIA Arm, which I would argue was a much stronger potential mm-hmm. case. I mean, I, I think we talked about a little bit when I was last here that NVIDIA, you know, they had offered certain concessions about what they were going to do with Arm and things like that that were just not bought. Uh, mm-hmm. at the at the federal level here. Uh, but there were kind of a lot of companies that said this could be a big problem for us and the, the pipeline for our inputs and design aspects and things like that. Realistically here, it's only Sony. Mm-hmm. Uh, every other publisher has either been neutral or kind of milk toast about the thing. Google is in there fighting for Sony as well. Oh, but okay. Google is essentially tainted, uh, not a terribly useful ally when talking yeah. about antitrust regulators. Uh, they've got their own issues. They got their own stuff going on. Uh, and so Google coming to Sony's defense is not super strong. Even the Politico article says, well, Google, that's not. Yeah. If you have like more like <laughs> companies that were known to just do their own thing and yeah. keep doing their own thing on Sony's side, that'd be good. But once you have Google against Microsoft, there's a lot of regulators that would go, it just seems like two giants mad at each other. Just let the meteor hit them. Yeah. No, it's, it, it is exactly that. Uh, and, and I do think Sony is. I don't necessarily blame them. Corporate lawyer, right? So I, mm-hmm. I give these folks a little bit of leeway that maybe some others on the internet don't. Uh, but I don't necessarily blame Sony for what I argue are pretty specious arguments because they think that they've got something there with the regulators. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's a great look for the future of the industry. I think there's a lot of kind of below the belt kind of hitting right ha- happening right now. Yeah, and, and that can have ramifications just in terms of uh, the overall comedy and and growth of the industry long term. So I'll be interested to see how that plays out. I do think Microsoft was taken a bit by surprise by Sony's vociferousness. I certainly was. Um, And so that has kind of heightened the conversation uh, with with Sony being so animated. And of course, Sony being the leader in the world on Mm -hmm. console games and has been for forever uh, is an interesting thing for regulators to have to deal with because Sony's the one with the market power. Sony just raised prices everywhere on earth except the United States. Right. I, you know, I was going to say, like, the letter of the word, exactly what's being said, is really fascinating for me on this one because Sony makes the argument no one can own Activision. And it's like, oh, okay, well, then what's the minimum? What is it? A 10 bill? Like, what size can someone own EA? They're smaller than Act. Like, what, where do we go? 
where it's this is oh you can buy Bungie but you can't right. buy you know, buying Bungie is okay to Sony right right uh, we we know buying exclusives is okay to Sony this is where I get into trouble on my channel I say oh you're just a Sony hater it's like I only I mostly play Sony it's the funniest thing in the world it's it's I'm I'm a corporate transactions guy with experience in antitrust mergers and I'm looking at it going. I don't want this to be the standard on which transactions are judged. Some of the stuff I see coming from the FTC and and the Sony arguments is like, I, I don't think this should be where regulators come in and, and pound on the table on some of this stuff. So that's really me looking at it from a transactions perspective. Uh, but I, I look at this deal and say, I think it should go through. I think it would go through pretty cleanly in other eras. And I'm not sure... I'm not sure what happens if it gets blocked. I don't know what happens to Activision. Because, like, what's the letter of the word if they block it? Do they say you can't own a company this big, or do they say you can't own a company because of this reason? And will that undo a bunch of other acquisitions? So that's not really how it works. Uh, it could okay. be, like, read into that happening in the future. Like, they might go after this next or whatever. Uh, right, because it's, it's not like, like a Supreme Court thing, I guess. Yeah. No, it's not like they make a decision and, like, other things fall apart. It's just, like, the logic could lead you there. But the interesting thing with regulators is that logic might lead you there, but you can generally always differentiate a deal, right? Mm-hmm. You say, well, okay, you're going to block this. Should you not block Take-Two purchasing Zynga, for instance? You say, no, it's different because, what's well, $12 billion instead of $69 billion. There's a difference. Uh, but for X, Y, and Z, uh, it's mobile, it's not mobile. Whatever you want to do, if you want to distinguish, a regulator can, right? Mm-hmm. We can always distinguish two circumstances and say, here are the differences. And, uh, those are important for some. And because it's inherently political, a future person in charge would say, well, I think that also this new one is different, even though there's the mobile thing, but there's this other new thing, and that's why I have decided on my own that this one shouldn't go through. And the trickiest thing there is you don't want to be in the business, whatever political side you are on, of having the regulators pick a winner or loser in an industry. Because that does Mm -hmm. tend to maximize inefficiencies. It does limit possibilities for transactions. Even though I can look at somebody and say, well, Rick, I'm not really happy with consolidation of video games. I'm a little worried about it. I can sit there and agree with you. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I tell folks, people say, oh, you're just a Microsoft fan. It's like, eh, I'm a fan of getting deals done on the letter of the law. Uh, I'm not sure that them owning Call of Duty is a good thing. I, I am still concerned that Microsoft isn't exactly churning out hits with all these yeah. developers that they've purchased. So I'm still, I still want to see them get that ball rolling. I'm optimistic. Uh, but I, I just think that the deal should go through because I don't think there's a strong argument that this substantially lessens competition in a real market, video game distribution mm-hmm. and publishing. So Timo H writes in, he says, Hi, Tom yeah. and Richard. I saw a recent video wherein Richard suggested that the MS Activision Blizzard deal could still be blocked by the FTC. How likely is that at this point, almost a year into the process? Because to me, it seems like the Xbox team has just started planning their operations like the deal went through already. And I think that's kind of the part I wanted to focus on as well. Like, uh, number one, how likely do you think it is to go through at this point? Mm-hmm. Um, I actually have a follow up on that too. And then number two, just is there any reason Xbox wouldn't be acting like this is going to go through from the beginning anyways? Or, or do you think that is just a evidence that they really didn't expect there to be much issue? I think they expected how things are going right now with the exception of Sony. Mm-hmm. Um, you always were going to have some pushback from Europe. Europe looks at a tech combination and says no as kind of a starting position. And, and it's going to be a little bit more frictionful. And you need Europe. You can't just have the deal without Europe. Wait, uh, so that was yeah. my follow-up, though. What happens, and I assume they wouldn't let this happen, Europe's huge, you know, but, like, let's say the UK. Let's say the UK box that no one else does. Yeah. I, I don't think they do this, but 
what would they do if they decided to go, okay, not the UK? They just have to pull all Microsoft business out of the UK? Or how does that, it what depends. would happen? Yeah, it depends on what the United Kingdom would actually ask there. The problem is, of course, Microsoft isn't just a gaming company. They mm. aren't just selling Xboxes. They sell Windows, for instance. Because so that'd be crazy, right? If the UK threatened, you know, you can't sell Microsoft products or do business in the UK or any of our territories. And then what would happen if Microsoft said, we call your bluff. Sure, tell everyone to turn their laptops in. Yeah, so the UK is probably too big for that. But if we if we think about something like New Zealand deciding to just okay. be the only one that stops them, then Microsoft probably says, all right, well, then we're not going to service your jurisdiction. And it becomes one of those that I like to put on my videos. I like into when uh, you, you got a, a sports team that you like or a channel that you like and Comcast won't pay the carriage fees. And so you get all these kind of like tweets and messages. It says, tell Comcast to pay our carriage fees. You'd get that, I think, from Microsoft. Mm. Is your Windows not functioning? Are you having trouble with whatever? I think you get, let tell the regulators to let us in because this is silly to be fighting over enterprise software on this stuff. You can also get splits and allowances and things like that. Uh, but in general, what Microsoft is doing right now, in all likelihood behind the scenes, is that they're looking at the US, they're looking at the EU, and they're looking at the UK and saying, Okay, these guys have decided they're probably likely to ask for concessions, at minimum, if they're not going to sue to block. We need to synchronize those. We're a multinational mm -hmm. corporation. We want to make sure that we don't have to have one kind of Xbox in this jurisdiction and one over here. Or Game Pass has to have these loops and things like that. So they, the big process where the lawyers get paid the money here is, okay, we have to craft concession documents that our company can live with on a business level and don't, don't require kind of unique solution sets when you cross you know, international lines. Uh, and so it, it looks like that's part of the process right now. And then it just really comes down to whether one of these regulators or, or more than one decide that they, they just want to push it. We're not mm -hmm. even going to accept concessions. Let's just block the thing. And, and then you get into questions of, all right, why? What are you hoping to achieve? And you, as you rightly say, it's a political kind of consideration. There are executive branch agencies here in the United States, the equivalent in, the, in Europe, in the United Kingdom. And... Uh, you know, are you going to take more heat than not for not allowing this? They have a lot of cover, the FTC does, mm -hmm. because for the most part, people don't like tech companies. Like on, right. on, the, on the top end headline, uh, right? It's like, oh, you stop Microsoft from getting bigger. Oh, okay. Uh, that's not the hardest <laughs> sell in the world. Yeah. It's, um, I don't know if you remember the Pepsi Harrier Jet thing. Um, I was watching a uh, a documentary series that's on Netflix right now about uh, Pepsi basically promised that you'd get a Harrier jet if you drank enough Pepsi Promise. for points. Yeah, yeah. That's, it's like and that's where the argument school. came. What was fascinating is Pepsi countersued the people suing the, like who tried to get the Harrier jet yeah. in New York because they knew they'd be favorable in New York if the mm -hmm. lawsuit was yeah, there. It's a corporate type jurisdiction. And then additionally... Uh, they tried as hard as they could to get to a judge ruling because they were like, if we go to a jury, we're just going to lose. You ask yeah. anyone on the street, do you want to limit false advertising? Doesn't matter who they're just going to say, yeah, just give the kid a jet screw Pepsi, you know, yeah, or like, whatever the $30 million. Would, yeah. You make no. me decide. I'm like, yeah, I don't care about Pepsi. Give him a jet. And for some behind the scenes stuff, right? So I negotiate contracts for a living. If you've got a big client, you got a big corporation. One of the things you negotiate is for a waiver of a jury trial. Mm -hmm. uh, is that it, it is a well-known kind of psychological notion that if it's if it's going to be a little guy versus a big guy, you don't want that going to a jury. Uh, and so Pepsi doesn't want to go to a jury against whoever the guy is from wherever in the United States. Mm -hmm. It's just a guy. Uh, so you don't you don't want to send that to a jury because that's always going to be like, well, what does Pepsi care? Give him 30 million dollars or, or whatever yeah. it is. 
It's uh, about what a Harrier jet's worth. Yeah. <laughs> and there you go. And, and so uh, that's one of those that's really interesting. Yeah. The, the Harrier jet is actually a, a model that was used in, in my law school career. So it must be really old. It must be like the nineties. Uh, that was, is that an offer and acceptance, right? In order to have uh, a contract or a commitment, you have to have an offer and you have mm-hmm. to have something that can be accepted. And it was some huge number of points or whatever on their program. Uh, so it's, it's interesting that those are those are always funny because you can look at it one of two ways. It's kind of like Sony and Microsoft and everything else. It kind of depends on where you're coming from in life or or your own personal kind of proclivities here because you can look at it and say, well, they're they're just money grubbers. That's not that's an ad. <laughs> that's a commercial, mm. and they're just trying to go and seize some money from Pepsi. Okay, or you might say, yes, they are, and that's a good thing, right? Let's let's make sure that they're getting everything that they should have there on the commercials. The problem is, from a lawyer's perspective, is that that's how you wind up with tags on everything and disclaimers that are, you know, all across the bottom of the commercial. Uh, and so it's, it's an interesting question, but uh, I hadn't seen that documentary. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. Uh, I'd say it's good. It's good. It, okay. It's fun, you know? Um, but let me, let me move on to yeah. one of the main subjects I actually planned for us today. Although I really do like to, this diversion into like this acquisition. It is interesting one to follow. Um, but this is something that I reached out to a few contributors, a few contacts, and actually someone at Intel told me, ask him about patent trolling, because we're having to deal with that a lot right now. And I'm really curious <laughs> what you have to say. And so let me, th- I, I actually see this as being two sides to the Intel patent trolling discussion because, well, l- let me read it here. So sure. I'm quoting from Tweaktown for one part of this, and it's Intel has been ordered by a federal jury in Texas to pay VLSI Technology LLC a large sum for patent infringement, costing Intel almost a billion dollars. You didn't know who VLSI is. They're a patent holding company that's associated with the SoftBank Group Corp owned private equity firm Fortress Investment Group, who argued during a six day trial that Intel's previous gen Cascade Lake and Skylake processors violated their patents covering improvements to data processing. Of course, an Intel spokesman said that the company strongly disagrees with the verdict. Absolutely ridiculous, yes. uh, Yeah, (laughs) and that the company has plans to appeal this, with the Intel spokesman adding that the case is an example of many that shows the U.S. patent system is in urgent need of reform. Of course, VSI is fine with it. Uh, But, so, this is interesting because this is, you know, Sky, like, what are we at? It, It goes like Skylake, and Cascade Lake, I mean, and then they, we were like four generations later. Like, yeah. so this the is legal, old, the legal process is slow. <laughs> and like Intel is really annoyed. They're having to maybe pay for all this at the same time, though. And I'm quoting from Tech Dirt. Intel recently announced that it is handing 5,000 patents off to IP value, which spun up a shell corporation called Tahoe Research Limited to see who can shake down with these 5,000 patents. Usually the way these deals work is that a company, Intel, gets some relatively modest amount of cash up front for selling these to IP value. And then as a piece of anything the troll can squeeze out of others, they then give any extra profit they make to Intel. Uh, considering these are basically zero value patents to Intel <laughs> that they just sold, the temptation must be great to at least get something out of them. So that's from Tech So I'm not even sure what my question is. I mean, we keep seeing people throw around the term patent trolling. I didn't realize what were they called. There was one term I wrote down that I thought was absolutely hilarious. I thought it was. I think the company called themselves like a corporate aggregator or something. Like, (laughs) but okay. So I guess my first question. I'm not crazy, right? Intel's just a giant hypocrite here, complaining as they (laughs) hand five thousand patents to trolls, right? 
Well, I'm sure Intel would tell you that all of their patents are legitimate and they just don't have the resources to police their usage and that this is all a perfectly functioning, efficient economic deal. Uh, but mm -hmm. everybody else's trolls and only serve to hurt their company. I mean, you could always self-rationalize uh, on, on that basis, right? But I, I do think that the patent world and technology in particular has had this issue for a long time, which is that uh, I, I just to give the full disclaimer, right? I'm not a patent lawyer. Mm -hmm. Law is divided into specialties, and I do transactions in general. I know enough to be dangerous when dealing with specific intellectual property type questions because they appear in my licenses and my contracts and whatnot. But when we get into registrable intellectual property, when you're actually dealing with the USPTO, when you're dealing with copyright office, whatever it is, there are specialists that just do that. And I've got great colleagues that handle that for them. Uh, but in cer certainly in terms of what my clients deal with and what I have seen is that there does appear to be at least a time in the past and maybe still a time continuing today where what was registered, especially on the part of software and technology companies, were very broad patents. Right. Uh, and, and it was that breadth that I see as the real problem here. So one thing I think you could be looking for is some kind of process that's built into the law that says, okay, especially for stuff that's X amount of years old, we're going to take another look-see if somebody tries to bring an infringement complaint. Mm -hmm. That the USPTO has been working to make sure that in methodology-type patents, when you're talking about process uh, that we're a little bit more careful as a country uh, to, to make sure that those are specific enough that they aren't grabbing a lot of extra things that they shouldn't be grabbing. Uh, and so I think you do see Congress. This is this is a very this is an episode here where it's going to be like, well, how cynical is Rick about antitrust regulatory bodies and con Congress and the legislature in general? The answer is I, I deal enough with these third parties that I'm a at least a little bit cynical. That Congress talks enough about, hey, we need mm -hmm. to fix these things that I'm not sure that it'll ever happen. But I think when you're talking about a company like Intel, when you're talking about any company that has a large R&D division, we don't have to limit this to Intel. Mm -hmm. They're going to have a collection of patents, right? Because the proper process is, we don't know if it'll be useful for anything ever, but let's go try to make sure it's protected if we can get it registered. Uh, and so Intel has a lot of this stuff. They say, yeah, we're going to move it. And it's the same for other, other companies, but Intel obviously is currently operating on a commercial basis, and so they don't mm -hmm. like to see... They don't like to see these broad patents that might have been granted in the 80s or the 90s come swinging back at them for what, what did you describe it as they're getting sued over like just data improvement or something like that was the, the uh, line that was given in that article. Um, yeah, I didn't dig into the data processing yeah. that they infringed on. But some people I talked to at Intel about this told me that they think it's complete bullshit. Like they, they, they sure. really see this and they go. This is some broad statement. This doesn't make any sense. Like we put so much effort into this architecture. We're going to do it now better. Claiming the they made it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you do see those from time to time, right? Because I and I don't want to disparage the the, the patent folks, the trademark folks, that, but but they aren't always fully versed in you know the minutia of what's going on, especially on the bleeding edge of technology. Right? You can't blame them for that. Generally speaking, patent office has a really mm -hmm. tough job it's like you got intel or you got microsoft you got anybody else coming in and saying we invented this thing it does something really wild and you're only supposed to be able to get a patent if it's novel mm -hmm. right you're not supposed to be able to get a patent if it's obvious you're not supposed to be getting an, a, a patent if it is an obvious use of a pre-existing piece of intellectual property you're supposed to be only getting patents for things that are novel and generally speaking patent lawyers are paid lots of money i was gonna say i was told that was one of the 
better ones to go into for pay. Oh, absolutely. But it's also one of the hardest because they have specialty certifications and patents are like a different language. Mm-hmm. I tell you right now, I'm not a patent lawyer because that specialty is is writing a description. You, you try to imagine writing a description for either an engineering function or a software function or both in yeah. combination on like one sentence descriptors about what this thing does and why it should be protected. Uh, and it is a very, very hard job, both at the drafting level and then at the evaluation level, because you're talking about really expensive, well-paid, smart lawyers that are going to talk about, you know, a toilet seat cover, and they're going to make it sound like you've never heard of the idea. Like, mm-hmm. that's what they get paid for. And so it has taken a long time for the USPTO to even get to a place where they're like, okay, we, we need to be careful about method and software. And I think that happened a while ago at this point and it's still happening, mm-hmm. but you've so got you think to, it is improving. It is getting better. They know there's a problem as, as someone that doesn't register patents. My understanding from my colleagues and the folks that I generally talk to is that it is, it is better on the one hand, when we talk about trolls, it's often worse for like my client companies as mm-hmm. they're trying to get something protected. Right. So it's, it's, it's harder. Right. It's a narrower, it's a more tricky thing to get done. And it's an expensive process. So you also have that kind of resource management issue, which is like Intel can afford whatever, uh, I'm, I'm filing for patents and doing those kinds of things. Little startup in Ann Arbor, Michigan, right. is like it's going to cost what? <laughs> and that's a part of this process as well. So I definitely think you highlight these two articles to point out, isn't this hypocrisy? Yeah, to some extent. But I guarantee you their spokesperson or their internal business person can say, but, but our patents are yeah. real. Our patents are, we, we went and we spent the money to research and develop those things. And if, if they can go make money at a certain level, Right. My background is economics before law. It's like, okay, if they are actually valuable and people are taking advantage of that, there's a certain usefulness in saying having a specialty economic actor that says, well, we'll go, we'll go check for them. Mm-hmm. But, but certainly yeah, that can go too far, like anything in life uh, that can go too far. And I do think that you could look at reforms that say, let's, let's take a look at what that judge in the seventies thought about microcomputing. Shall yeah. we? Let's look at it again. <laughs> Although this fall has been insanely busy for most members of the Moore's Law is Dead team, there's one team member who's been allowed to take it quite easy recently. And, well, unless you're Reesey, unless you're just a dog chilling on a fall afternoon, you could probably benefit from as little wasted time as possible. And you should probably then try Vite Ramen. Vite Ramen is a delicious American-crafted source of protein and nutrients that takes minutes to make without sacrificing taste. This includes their classic packages that make it easy to add protein and other ingredients of your choice while cooking, and their new Ramen Go packages that offer a healthy microwavable option for those who truly only have a 15-minute lunch break. Whether you're back in the office now or still just working from home, Vite Ramen, you'll never be too busy to eat. And if you click the link in the description and use the offer code BROKENSILLY, Silicon, you can save 10% off a variety of different products, including special bundles for Moore's Law said fans, raw nudes if you want to make up your own recipes, and the Vite Go packages as well, and other cooking utensils and products. Whatever you'd prefer, using these offer codes really helps support Moore's Law is dead tremendously, and it gets you a good deal on a healthy, fast-to-make, and tasty, reliable sponsor of Moore's Law is dead. Try Vite Ramen today. Well, so, yeah, on that note, QH Freddy writes in and he says, in general, though, who benefits from patent trolling? Is there any incentive for regulators to control or restrict it in any matter? And I think, is it really helping anyone, though, for Intel to do this, for them to do this to Intel? Because this reminds me of there was um, copyright farms 
like th- like right when I got into YouTube, sure. where these companies would just look for ways to copyright strike someone. And the way YouTube fixed it is they removed the profit incentive. Yeah. And these companies just like almost all died overnight. And now it's it, you're not going to get copyright striked. Mo- it's very hard to now on YouTube. And I think it should be because I don't see how this helped. It got people mad at artists. It got artists mad that people were unknowing to them fighting little YouTubers who use two seconds of their music accidentally. Yeah. Like, well, and like, music still has that fight, right? Uh, certainly as a fellow person on YouTube, you get into those situations where music is one of those where you're especially careful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, YouTube solved that. They also solved it with claims, right? Mm-hmm. The, the claim process works pretty well. I think in a lot of ways, like 80% of the time, I think it's nice for somebody to make a, a fan trailer of how much they love Farscape or whatever mm-hmm. to whatever music they want. And, and it's okay. It's good. We don't, I, they're not trying to monetize it. Go give that money to whatever artist they used. Okay. It's all, everybody's a winner and nobody's going to federal court. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it can go too far, obviously, because you got you get claims on things. When, you know, my colleagues in the legal sphere. When you have sphere, a farm, that's job is to just yeah pester people for like cents. Yeah, like, it's crazy, and sometimes it just feels like that's what patent trolling is. Where I go, all this energy, all this effort, is this anyone actually benefiting from this besides the patent farm? I think you, you got to go to like a second or third level, right? Again, if we're thinking about it as economics, the idea, the concept, and I'm ta- I'm not this is devil's advocacy here. Sure, is that. You want these companies with the potential for R&D output to, to just be inventing. And, and you don't want to disincentivize that. And if they can't, at, lo- at some level, if they can't recoup their costs, then they're going to be on the margins disincentivized from it at some level, mm-hmm. right? Now, this stuff is old. They, they, didn't, they weren't using it. It was in the vault. It was getting dusty and, and maybe not. And you could, have a, you could have a law that talks about transferability, right? Is that a good law? I don't know. You'd have to look at the details because there are efficiencies in saying, well, Intel isn't in the business of policing patents and mm-hmm. knowing what some chip maker in some country somewhere is doing and whether or not they should have to pay Intel for it. And there is value to potentially having a more economically efficient solution there. But is there a value overall? I think there's a value to intellectual property. Some people in my comments would disagree. Mm-hmm. And if you think there's <laughs> a value to that at all, there's probably a value in being able to police it and move it. Can there be mm-hmm. limits on that? Age, double checks. Um, you know, the initial issuance is really where you where you curb that a little bit. Is you say, okay, people in the USPTO or or any patent or trademark office don't just grant super broad patents on things like we improve Apple, data. <laughs> yeah, Apple tried to patent rectangular phones. They did, and it's like if there was a legal dispute over that, maybe it's not the system. Maybe you just shouldn't have given them that patent, and yes. they didn't. Yeah, absolutely it is because you say, well, that's a clear and obvious kind of invention. We've got mm-hmm. we've got a screen, we make it this way, we don't we have it go all the way to the edges. That is not you don't you don't get protection for that. Mm-hmm. Right? Is how it should work, but it doesn't always. And again, Apple, Samsung, Microsoft, whoever has really good lawyers that if you read this thing you'd be like, "Man, that is that's crazy. What an idea." <laughs> you know, I, it, so the way they frame it, yeah, I'm sure they, yeah, the patent wouldn't just be we made rectangles. It would be no. something else. In the it title. would be 17 pages. It would be 144 claims, and you'd be like, yeah, I think at least some of those are legitimate. You'd be like, wait, wait, wait what are we talking about? It's mm. just, it's just beveled edges on on a. All right, okay, and, and so I, I do have some sympathy for that because if you've ever mm-hmm. seen a patent at all in your life, they are they are ridiculous documents. Uh, that is some that is some agic, actual magical spell incantation stuff. It is as close as we get to you have to say these three words and yeah. out pops a patent. 
um, that we have in law. And so I have a great deal of respect for those people. They earn their money, but I also have a great deal of respect for the PTO. Uh, and so I think what you're looking at is you need a legislative function to say, what is it that we want? Where do we think the value lives? Uh, and that's an actual policy conversation uh, mm-hmm. between these parties. But as far as Intel goes, I, am, I take a pretty lean, lenient stance towards if that's the way the system is, you, you go participate in the system. Mm-hmm. Right. You can you know, on one end of your mouth, you could say this is unfair. And on the other, you could say, well, if this is how it is, this is how it is. We got to play the game. And so, again, right. corporate, corporate lawyer. <laughs> and so I, I, I look at that and say, OK, yeah, I get how Intel got there. And I also get how people can claim they're hypocrites because they're right. Right. Because uh, let me see here. This was well. So they've been litigating this. OK, for a very long time. Uh, the, the one that's making Intel possibly pay a billion the wheels of justice. And then you look. <laughs> This year, they decided to start litigating other people themselves. And who knows if maybe they realized, oh, we might actually lose this. Well, if we're going to lose this, we might as well make money back with our pans. Because if anyone thinks they can sue us for a patent, you guys haven't seen anything yet. We like, we're the people who invented USB. Are you ready for some patent trolling? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're Intel. We got some patents in the back room if that's going to be what's effective for us. And also, you know, we make fun of them saying, oh, this is outrageous and we're going to appeal. Um, that they could easily have some success with that. When, when you talk about you know jury damages and verdicts of that type, there's a lot of success in appealing those kinds of things. Okay, so I want to move on to sure. another Intel-related subject here, keeping with the blue lighting. Um, <laughs> this is one of those things where I feel like I already know the overall answer. Like Intel is very careful how they talk about when they launch products, what their products look like, if they launch, in quotes, on time. Well, technically, this isn't a quarter because we had it sold to one guy in, you know, Bolivia or something. (laughs) I understand that Intel is very careful about how they say things and do things um, so that they don't quite technically lie. But when it comes to the Alchemist, the Intel XE releases, I still just that means even if I know Intel might technically not have lied to their shareholders, I want to know where that line is and so uh, I, I sent you a ton of links, but just you to did. like you know go back and like summarize, maybe just for everyone listening to this whole XE release saga. A few years ago, I think over almost four years ago, Intel announced the XE Odyssey. They have clear slides showing things like because people would argue, well, they never promised it would have a, they'd launch a high end product. They literally have slides where they say, "Here's mid range, here's high end. We're going to launch." They, they distinctly said they were going to launch high-end cards soon. And then a year after that, you know, Moore's Law is Dead leaked the entire specs of the graphics cards that finally came out about a month ago. And we just waited and waited. I had pictures a year before these things came out. Like, I thought it was like, if you were to tell me in early 2021, when I had pictures of the Intel graphics cards, that actually a year and a half from now is when <laughs> we're going to see these things in consumers' hands. I, I I almost wouldn't, I I don't know if I would have believed you. I'm like, but they have them. Like, they're right here. But this has been such a dragged out process. They promised they'd launch in quarter one, uh, you know, late last year. And then nothing came out really, I would argue, until the middle of 2022. I think they argued they launched some ARC laptops in korea but no one could find them not one person could submit a picture of one on a store shelf or whatever um and then their desktop cards launched in quarter three even though they were talking about lots of launches in quarter one and so i don't know this has been a whole thing because from the people i've talked to at intel 
a discrete arc is effectively canceled, at least for the next couple of years. Like okay. when you buy up wafers to produce these products, you reserve them ahead of time. And it takes like three to five years to design these chips. They're really complicated. The people I talk to, there's like basically nothing in 2023, maybe some low end product in 2024. And I've had reporters that I talked to ask Intel for comment. And all they do is keep pointing, pointing to this roadmap that I've included in our document that shows that they said they were going to compete in enthusiast graphics this year, which they haven't. And then they said that they're going to, if you look at this weird chart where like the, it's like angled upwards, you can see it dips into ultra enthusiast, supposedly in 2023 through 2024. And from what I'm hearing, they just don't even, they've canceled the chips that would be able to compete in ultra enthusiast already. So I, I'm kind of like rambling at a certain point here, but like, could someone argue that Intel lied to investors? They said they were going to compete in enthusiasts. In fact, they kind of said they were going to compete in enthusiasts in 2021. What they launched is something late 2022 that is failing to compete with AMD and NVIDIA's low-end cards from 20, well, I guess from 2021 technically, but generations that started in 2020. So this is, I don't know how you can argue you're an enthusiast when you know they, they can't even compete with like a, a 3070 NVIDIA's just launched the 4090 and 4080. Did they lie to investors or why could they easily argue they didn't? Yeah, so lie is a statement of intentionality, right? Okay. So that's the very first kind of hurdle you have to, to jump over, which is a, a lie at its baseline level. The easiest way to prove it is we know what we are about to present is false and we present it, we present it anyway. Um, so certainly if I'm, if I'm Intel and I'm thinking about this, I'm just imagining the way this goes. Mm -hmm. You say there's an announcement in 2019, the most obvious thing that jumps out from a legal perspective is, well, there was a pandemic and there was supply and there was fabrication and there was logistics and stuff that happens in between that. Don't know whether it impacted them directly. Yeah. Don't know how much it, I, I don't, I'm not sitting in that room. I'm not looking at their internal business documents, but it's easy enough to say, oh yeah, in 2019, 2019, we thought this was all on down. The world changed. Um, world changed and maybe we didn't handle it well. Maybe we didn't recover properly. Maybe other people got in front of us for fabrication. Maybe our design sucked. I, I don't know. Uh, but that, that 2019 year jumps out at me as, as potentially presenting problems for a lot of folks that want to bring kind of a shareholder class action or something, which is that uh, a lot of stuff that we were looking at as the world wasn't the world for 2020 and 2021. So you get a little bit of leeway there from a legal perspective because you have to have that intentionality. Now, as part of talking to investors, lying also includes omissions of material facts that might make things more clear, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at a presentation that says X and X is true, that kind of technically accurate is the best kind of accurate meme, right? Well, maybe not when you're talking about stockholder facing statements because you're not allowed to lie certainly on that kind of mm -hmm. intentional basis you're also not allowed to forget well but we actually mean it isn't going to be enthusiast or it's going to be something different and you could start to get into a situation where bare minimum if you want to bring a class action because of value and you think the directors have lied in some kind of uh, statement you could potentially get past that summary dismissal stage which is what's important and you get into discovery and then maybe you find emails where you got some director somewhere saying can we actually hit this no but they don't know that you know you're, this is what you're looking for right right out of that process but from afar not sitting in those rooms the, the concerns that i would have are that 
Um, they're almost certainly going to have the disclaimers that you want to have on their on their stockholder facing statements. If you've not ever seen these, they will have a section called forward looking statements. And it will basically say, this is to the best of our knowledge, what we think is going to happen in the future, but we aren't uh, prognostication folks. We can't predict all future events. And so you have to take those with a grain of salt and forward looking statements cannot be held against us at the same level as a current statement. So it's a lot easier to say, uh, we can sue you if you say you made $6 billion and you only made four. Uh, mm. that, that's fraud. It's, it's a yeah, lie. We got a pretty clear cut case yeah, right yeah. there. We're going to release this thing in 2021 when you're sitting there in 2019 and it doesn't release. It depends on like all of these things, the facts and circumstances of what you're actually saying at the various moments in time, what your internal information is. And if you've got a colorable type claim, circumstantial evidence enough to say maybe they are lying and you can get through that first piece of a lawsuit where they where they try to kick you out. That this is nothing. Uh, it's all speculation. And whatnot. If you can get through that, then you can start to get into the that discovery process. And you can start to say, well, all right, let's see if we can find that COO or that CEO or that vice president or mm-hmm. that distribution chief that says the wrong thing. Uh, but while I think you can look at it and say, are they even being serious with us right now, especially in the kind of stuff that's more current, the, the closer stuff to 2022, kind of post-pandemic, at least as far as logistics is concerned, uh, you could, you'd have a potentially better argument than the 2019 stuff. And I, I hate to say that. And again, I'm speaking kind of speculatively mm-hmm. here because it all is based on like the actual language used yeah. and what they knew at the time. Um, th- those are the kind of two components that you're looking at. I will say this, the securities laws in particular, which you or your audience might have noticed in the last few years, are particularly well drafted to encourage lawyers to get involved. Uh, That class action securities litigation uh, is very well paying for legal firms. And so you have a lot of people going and looking for a class lead that is willing to sue over these things. We've seen that a lot in gaming as a, for instance, we see a lawsuit from against CDPR for the release of cyberpunk 2077 mm-hmm. and whether they lied about the state that it was going to release it. Yeah, it's kind of a similar comparison actually. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's that kind of notion. Uh, okay. The directors lied to us and then, and then CDPR said some stupid stuff on the phone call live to stockholders. And it's like, all right, okay. I think I have a video on my channel. It's like, please stop talking. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not that, you know. <laughs> that I, I had that with Intel arc, you know, they kept going to these press tours and like the summer of this year. And they were just like, you know, we're going to do all this stuff. And I, you know, a lot of my channel is leaking stuff from people who work at Intel. And I'm talking to them like, they say this will be ready in a month. Will it? And the guy like testing the cards, like, no, there's no <laughs> way this will be ready in a month. I don't know why he thinks it will be. Yeah. And, and that reminds me a lot of cyberpunk there, but you know, they could argue, but cyberpunk did come out. It did have good graphics. According to this website, is that not, a, you know, open well, you have all those arguments, right? And in that video about CD project, one of the things I say is like, actually being dumb, being a bad manager, <laughs> being a bad director, whatever is, is, is a defense to I'm mm-hmm. lying to you, right? I'm an idiot is a defense in some respects to I'm committing fraud on the market or on the investors and, and these kinds of things. And, and so it might be that manager X is too optimistic. Now, at some level, you get past the point of reasonability, right? What does the law care right. about? The law cares about the reasonable investor that's looking at the situation. What can they believe? And if you're trying to affect this price on the market and you're omitting to state, but I really think this isn't going to happen. And you, that's mm-hmm. like what you know. Then you can start to get into those things. And like I said, uh, class plaintiffs, plaintiffs firms that specialize in this kind of thing basically always have an incentive to at least dig around and see if there's something there 
because they get paid if, if they wind up running a class action against a, a company like this. Now, do you or I get paid <laughs> if, if they lose a class action? No, primarily that's going to go to the lead plaintiff and the, and the lead counsel for that plaintiff. Uh, that's where you get those those things in your inbox. Here's 35 cents of uh, store credit for, for whatever uh, on, your, on your class action. Uh, but it all depends on intent. It all depends on what they actually knew at the time. Uh, and the fact that it is forward-looking releases, it's going to be a harder case than something that's present. Yeah, and I mean, because I just wonder at what point does someone, like, I, like what's the line where you go, well, they did, because like, they could just argue, well, there was this example where they had these ads where they're like, you know, a new player enters the chat, Intel enters the chat or something against AMD and NVIDIA in quarter one. And they had these, I think, I think they had a page on their website that said coming quarter one, 2022. And then they didn't do a press release. They didn't do an update. They didn't mention it anywhere, but eventually someone noticed, Hey, uh, at some point this week, Intel changed it to not coming quarter one. It just now says coming 2022. And they never said anything like it. I just, I, I guess I wonder, like, I guess they could argue, well, that is us publicly, you know, changing things, but. Well, and that we had a legitimate belief, right? If you think about this from something that's less important than hardware infrastructure, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, but like a video game, right? We had tons of delays this year, right? Mm-hmm. And that didn't stop, let's say, Warner Brothers Entertainment from saying their Hogwarts game was going to come out this year. They started there. That's what they said. They announced that in March. It's coming out mm-hmm. in 2022. It's not coming out in 2022. It isn't. It's going to come out in 2023. Um, and they tell you that uh, about a month ago, maybe two months ago. Uh, mm-hmm. But for that interim period, they're acting under the premise that that's what they believe. And so what you have to get to a place of is no reasonable person could believe what Intel is saying right now. Like, mm-hmm. like that you have to have that level of you're not allowed to be optimistic because a court's going to not going to want to jump in and replace the business judgment of a company with its own. Judges right. are going to be smart enough to say, I don't. I don't run a chip manufacturing or design company. So if they say they think it's coming out now, you're going to have to show me that they're essentially fabricating that. Um, and if they aren't, well, it's a tough it's a tough claim to bring. So whenever you're looking at release dates or forward-looking statements, it is tougher than, you know, saying X, Y, or Z that is false. Right, because, okay, so that gets interesting, or that, that makes me think about this pretty clearly then. Um, because, you know, they changed what they were saying Every few months, all of a sudden, oh, now we're saying it's not enthusiasts, although we're still using this old chart that said it was going to be. Yep. <laughs> we're saying it's going to be for, you know, serious gamers, not enthusiasts, but serious gamers or something like that. And then they go, oh, and OK, well, you know, it's going to be on shelves. I remember that was one thing I got right where I said they said on shelves quarter one. That doesn't mean for sale. That means they have to have been on a shelf and then they could go on sale in April or something, which is what happened. And I just laughed. Like, I couldn't believe the pedantic nature of some of this wording. And that's but the kind of thing I think you could lose, right? If a reasonable person right. thinks that's for sale, and I think they could, absolutely, that mm-hmm. is the kind of thing where you could get yourself in trouble. Right. And so the whole question becomes, if you're an investor and you feel like Intel misled you, like the progress of this huge division that's... I, I forgot what the number is at this point, but I think it was like losing like $250 million a quarter yeah. building these chips that so far have gone nowhere and aren't making money. You would sue if you think there's going to be a memo that says, hey, we have to keep acting like this is going forward, even though we know it won't, because every 
There's a lot of optimism in 2021 around these products, but yeah. somewhere around January, everyone I talked to started saying, no optimism, this thing's not ready, it's going to be a disaster. And if every engineer I asked said that, how could the people at the top not know? Or And I do, to be clear, think, you know, Intel's a huge company. I do think maybe the graphics division wasn't being honest to the headquarters. Yeah. That's possible. Don't yeah. get me wrong. I, and I think that might have actually been what happened from the sounds of it. But... That's the type of thing that you would have to have good authority that or, or a real belief that's there's some paper trail there if you what is it uh, I forgot the term for like where they have to release all their documents and discovery yeah discovery yeah, yeah you'd, you'd have to have a thought process there but you could start to craft one potentially uh, you know if you had somebody giving you that kind of information that says you know the, the bottom line is everybody at Intel knew it wasn't coming out. And management must have known and management said it anyway, that kind of thing. That's where you start to develop a case. And obviously, that's all speculative. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what's happening internally at Intel. Uh, but that's the kind of thing that could potentially work. Because again, what, what the law cares about is you're the closest to the information management of Intel. And mm -hmm. we want the market to be able to rely on that to some extent. And so if you're going out here with ridiculousness that you, you know or even have a reasonable belief that is false then we, we want to potentially have some redress there. We, we want you to not be able to do that. Uh, so that's the kind of thing that could potentially be a problem. But it would really be, hey, it's circumstantial enough that we can get in and we, we think we can find a memo that says we're going we're gonna to snow these people with this. Right. And so I guess the, the final question I have to kind of round out this discussion yeah. is... And, and, you know, I, I'll, I'll put it on screen for people who watch this on YouTube again. But, like, there's this chart. They said they were going to compete in Enthusiast 2022. And then, and I love how they go by year. And all of a sudden, now it's two years. And then from 2023 to 2024, which I think, based on what I've been told by engineers, 2024, guys, <laughs> um, they're going to compete in, and it shows this on the chart, Ultra Enthusiast. And, in fact, after 2024, they say they're going to be better than ultra enthusiasts suggesting they think they can take the entire performance crown from nvidia in like 2025 at what point do you think they get in a lot of hot water because again these things take years and yeah. so when i talk to engineers right now and i just actually was asking one to make sure maybe something will change no one working at a company of 100,000 people knows every project that's going on <clears throat> but at least what i'm told is right now what they're working on is something that in a best case scenario will probably be a 4070 competitor, you know, but this is again coming out in almost two years from now. So by then maybe we'll be on the NVIDIA 5070. Yeah, long time in tech terms. Yeah. You know, and, and, but in worst case scenario, I think maybe you'll lose to the 4060 and be competing with a 5060. So like, at what point do they get in a lot of hot water? Is it when 2023 comes to an end and VN and AMD are announcing their new generations and NVIDIA and Intel has only ever competed in the low end and still haven't launched anything? Or is it when the new generations come out? And because from what I'm hearing, there's like one die they're working on. They can't like, you know, like I'm sure you're familiar somewhat with like gra gaming graphics. Like there's the 4090, the 4080. Those use different dies. Like one of them costs way more to make. Like from what I've heard, they've canceled the top one. And they're just making one like lower mid-range one. Like at what point does it become obvious that they knew they weren't going to compete in Ultra Enthusiast in 2024? Like when, you know. The trickiest thing I hear from you on this in terms of the description is, do we have good definitions for enthusiast and ultra enthusiast in the marketplace? Mm -hmm. Like obviously they're trying to say top, top end. Like we, we can get that that's what they're trying to we say. We know, yeah. But how much, 
how much leeway is there on the bot? Uh, how, how big is that? And we could still say, yeah, it's kind of ultra enthusiast. Like that's what you're starting to get into without kind of defined terms. Uh, right. So I, I would think the at- closest they get though on that chart yeah. to the top of their chart, the easier it is to prove their line. Because if you say, if they would have made this so much easier on themselves if they said they were going to compete in gaming desktop and that's it or even just mid-range because mid-range is really open to interpretation what's a mid-range 300 400 i would say at this point because of inflation mid-range is 500 some yeah. people would say it should never be above 200 dollars for a graphics card that's something i can hear the arguments from both sides but once you have a chart that shows you above the top tier you're saying you're competing with your competition's best i think that becomes more obvious yeah i i think i would agree with that um so i guess where you where you have a claim is if behind the scenes they're they know this is not going to happen and and to some extent their history of delays here um is maybe helpful to them that a reasonable investor is looking at this and saying well they're very at bare minimum they are a very optimistic management right and and that you can look at it and say hmm i they they have not proven that this has been something on their timeline and and what we don't want to penalize is we think we can get this done let's talk about it legitimately not assuming that they're lying we think we can get this done and we were wrong. You don't want to penalize that from the law side. You will certainly be penalized on that in the market. Market be like, right. well, which you know, their stock price is, you know, kind of reflecting that right now. Yeah. So again, that's kind of the thing that defends you a little bit, not in a great way. This is not a way that you, you know, make a lot of money as management, but, but that you say, okay, no, the market is reacting. The market is able to discern, you know, the probabilities here. We're, we're, we're optimistic, but we don't make promises on forward looking statements. We've had these issues delivering to market. Things change, plans change. That's that's how the forward-looking statements work. So when you talk about a lawsuit, you'd have to actually be somebody somewhere saying there's realistically no chance that this is going to happen, and we're deliberately manipulating the stock price to try to keep our jobs. So I guess you know the final question I have for this: What can Intel? What can't Intel say? Like, could they say anything and they won't get in? And again, to say they won't get in trouble? Oh no, they're getting punished in the stock market, although. Pretty much everyone is now, but they yeah. are extra hard, it feels like. What can't they say? Could they have said, could, I, I'm assuming you'd say probably not. They couldn't say, we're going to conquer gaming, we're going to have the best card, and they launch something that's low end. Is that illegal? Or, Maybe not. Or, you know what I mean by that? This is you where know? I get in a lot. You know, is, people really love lawyers, right? If you say something like, we're going to have the best card, that's what we would traditionally call puffery. That's 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 language that is ours is going to be the the keenest the the neatest card ever the neatest uh, the coolest the coolest Not strongest yes yeah, very very kid facing you know just the neato kino uh, card uh, ever that kind of language is almost always going to be okay uh, which is just like we're a company we're advocating for our stuff coming out and we think it's going to be the best and you can evaluate mm-hmm. those on your own um, uh, we are going to have we're going to hit a mark. Um, uh, you know, whether that's, I, I don't even know how these things are judged, uh, frame rate size, uh, mm-hmm. whatever it is going to be. And, and we know that can't happen. We know our fabrication can't accomplish that. That's where you get into trouble, uh, mm-hmm. we're, that we're deliberately, you know, this is the Theranos of it all. <laughs> our, our product is going to do this. Nah, it, it's never, ever going to do that. We're, we're, yeah. We're, so all of these <laughs> like high end enthusiast, the best, these are all open to interpretation. Mm-hmm. But if you have a like, and again, I think this roadmap is what they're going to get in the most trouble for. If you have a roadmap like- that says we're an ultra enthusiast and you, they literally showed products and what that meant before, like, oh, and this equals this. 
that's where they get into trouble. But everything else, they can say basically anything and then argue, well, we really meant this. Well, yeah, I, what I would say from the kind of real politic kind of standpoint is you, you could say anything that you want until you're getting sued for it, right? And to the extent that you mm-hmm. can't say something, the real test is facts and circumstances based on fighting and opposition to that statement. And so there's a lot of gray area because no statement between two companies, between two eras, between two products or services is ever going to be identical. Uh, and so it's an evaluation of those kinds of things. But the actual fundamentals are, are you lying? Are you deliberately obfuscating in a way that a reasonable person could be affected? And is somebody willing to take up that charge? Um, and if they are, then you could find yourself in trouble. But, mm-hmm. you know, very often if you get past that first step, you aren't going to want to go to discovery. You don't want people sifting through your emails. That's where you get a settlement anyway. Uh, and so there's all sorts of things like that. It sounds like just from afar, because I'm not I'm not following these marketing moves sure. or discussions uh, individually from what you've described in the links that you sent to me. Uh, they're at bare minimum walking a potential line. There's there's reasons to believe that that's not true optimism. It's just difficult to prove. Right. Yeah. And I, and that's again, like I said at the beginning of this part of the episode, I think I know the answer. They looked around and they made sure they were at least walking the line. That they, yeah. People they well, pay to make sure they do that. One of the one of the rubrics I use on my channel is it, when we're evaluating a headline or a press release or something like that is assume this has been vetted by lawyers and assume it isn't strictly lying. Mm-hmm. And then let's talk about the holes in what they're saying. Let's talk about the things they leave out. Let's talk about the areas in which they could be um, allowed to operate in this sentence or this thing. Because that tends to be how, if you're a multinational giant corporation, you're going to operate. You're going to say, what can we say? What can't we say? Legal's going to look at it. PR is going to look at it. And you, you can read between the lines somewhat. Uh, mm-hmm. on some of these things. You know, there might be a bit of language uh, in one of these statements where you say, mm, that sounds like they're not positive about X. Um, and and we, could, we could dive into that. But in general, assume that it's not a flat-out lie and that if they are omitting, it's carefully vetted and trying to not walk across the line to get a class action brought against them. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, so moving on to another subject, but yeah. again, one where I think is just completely full of like, very careful language. Um, NVIDIA has had an issue with a uh, power connector. Um, so there's usually on a graphics card. I mean, honestly, when I got started, you put like one little six pin in and it used 100 watts. Now graphics cards are gigantic and use tons of energy. Um, and then, you know, it kind of became standard, I'd say, a few years ago that we'd have two eight pins. And each eight pin can provide uh, as standard, I should say, although they can actually provide more, 150 watts. And so two eight pins gets to 300. The slot the card's in can provide 75. You know, so two eight pins plus the slot, you're getting to almost the power consumption of two PS5s anyways. Okay. Uh, a 16-pin can provide 600 watts of energy. So yes, one connector can provide more energy than three PS5s are typically using while you're gaming. <laughs> so that is the level we're getting to with like desktop graphics That's some muscle. Then. Yes, and you just hope it's worth the power consumption of turning your, <laughs> you know, your your gaming room into a server room. I was just saying, I don't want these bills from some of these. Yeah, <laughs> not in Europe, no. But um, what the what's cool though about the newer connector is on paper is that you don't need to put in multiple connectors. It's one, and it can provide more power. I don't think the idea behind our. I didn't think the idea behind that was to provide too much energy. I thought it was just so it didn't matter what you built. You could just use one connector for everything. Now I'm finding, you know, I have a 450 watt card here. It seems like they might actually need it, 
But at the end of the day, it, 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 they were smaller than the eight pins. They could provide more power. They're kind of better in every way, but well, how do you get there? It's more expensive. It's more, the tolerances have to be tighter. And when the 4090 came out, some people were reporting online that the connector that you just plug into the side of the card melted, like in smoked and caught fire. And they're, you know, 1500 to no, 1600 to like $2,000 graphics card now needed to be sent in for repair. And they're, it sucks, you know? Yeah. I think if I were to recap how this all went down, the first thing I have to point out is the previous generation, they didn't use this connector except for one flagship product they launched at the beginning of this year. So they're on the 4000 series. They launched a 3090 Ti that used the new 16 pin. I don't believe anyone has submitted an issue um, of this ever going wrong. And I actually talked to a person in Germany, Igor from Igor's Labs, and he said one of his 4090s melted, or the connector did. He took it off and then soldered on the connector from a 3090 Ti. He said it worked fine. So I, I think that's an interesting thing to keep in the back of our mind this whole time. There's been a lot of testing, especially by Gamers Nexus, and a lot of hearsay. Honestly, there were weeks where NVIDIA said nothing, and I thought it was just mind-blowing that they just let, you know, scary thumbnail after scary thumbnail with a PC on fire from all these outlets making their products look bad. What Gamers Nexus and a few others have basically found is when you plug in one of these connectors, it'd be like a clicking noise, feel the click. It seems like, and I provided a link that had a picture where you can kind of see how there isn't a notch. Yeah. There isn't, and, and I didn't hear one either. I plugged in this 4090 and I was sure I plugged it in enough, but there was no like satisfying click. It just was kind of like a firm and then it stopped moving. It seems like a, it's pretty easy to maybe not plug those in all the way. And that seems to be what's causing the melting. That's what NVIDIA's saying right now. At the same time, I know that the CEO of NVIDIA met with the people who are making these ports, which you'd probably do either way to kind of round the wagons if something like this popped up. Sure. And, um, there's still some suggestion that maybe some of the adapters included with the cards, because existing power supplies don't have this connector right away, so you have to use an adapter. Okay. Like, maybe some of these adapters were cheaply made. Um, but at the end of the day, it does seem like it's like a, I don't remember what the number is, right? Like, one out of 5,000 thing. Okay. But, but one where, I don't, I, this never happened with a 3090 Ti. And I'm like, if this never happened before, why is it happening now? And how much is NVIDIA on the hook for this connector, even if they can claim it's user error? I don't know. I, I provided a lot of links. I'm Yeah. How careful is NVIDIA? Like, is the reason they didn't talk for weeks because they knew they had to be very careful trying to avoid extra PR? And how much do you think they're kind of in trouble with this whole situation right now? Because it doesn't seem that widespread as we thought it might be, but it does seem like there is arguably a flaw in the version of the connector they're using. You could argue there is a flaw. Yeah, well, and, and certainly new products have flaws all the time. So a couple of things jump out. One, you know, we're talking about kind of products liability as, as a legal field, and those are going to be varied a lot across jurisdictions, even states in the country, mm -hmm. uh, depending on, on where you go to. But, but generally speaking, when you buy a piece of hardware, when you buy almost anything, uh, there'll be some warranty language. There'll be some reps and war uh, warranties language. There'll be uh, limitations on liability and things like that. I would be a lot more concerned about this story as, as you relate it to me just now if it was melting Hulk computers 
if it was if it was lighting fire to apartments, yeah. you know, that kind of thing is where you really get into trouble. Because in general, you can write your reps and warranties to say what I would call probably no consequential damage, uh, that we don't have liability for other terribly bad things. And you can see this sometimes in like the uh, the Sony PlayStation 5 hardware uh, document. Yeah, if it lights fire to your living room, sorry, uh, that's we're not going to pay for that. You know, that, that kind of stuff. And, and that often doesn't necessarily work because there are equitable considerations that every jurisdiction has. It says, no, no. If you bought a PlayStation 5 yeah. and it burned your house down, um, we're going to talk about your design. We're going to talk about how that happened. We're going we're gonna to talk about these various things. Uh, and so I, I always try to caution people. I say, look, in the United States, contract is pretty sacrosanct. Companies are allowed to write almost whatever they want. But there are instances where it's like, no, no, you didn't buy the PlayStation 5 understanding that there was a possibility your, your house would burn down. So if you were saying, like, these things burned computers out, which are obviously p- places where people spend a lot of money and a lot of investment, I would be really worried about that. Uh, if I were NVIDIA, if they're killing their own cards and if it's at the rate that you suggest something like a one in 5,000, a lot of the law is going to look at that as kind of the acceptable threshold for a new design, a new element, especially if they are taking care of you. If, if NVIDIA is saying, all right, you send it in, you get it back. Nobody likes that 90 days, whatever more. Nobody likes that. You just, you were excited about your card. You're going to just play super high end Witcher three, whatever it is you're going to do with this thing, and you're going to you're going to play this, and you don't get to. Nobody likes that. Uh, but in general, you know, we've had kind of cascade failures and things in products liability land that are are significantly worse than that. Uh, and what what the law is most worried about is it kills you, or it just destroys a, a ancillary investments, or the company just refuses. The company says. Well, we wrote right here. We don't have to do anything. Sorry about that $2,000. Which, yeah, they're agreeing to repair them. <laughs> yeah, so that's the first thing a company does, right? That's the very first thing a company does. You look at things, again, in MySpace, where it's like the Nintendo Switch Joy-Cons basically only work for five minutes and then completely start <laughs> doing weird things all the time. And Nintendo first says, no, they don't. And then Nintendo says, we'll take we'll take all your Joy-Cons. We'll, 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 we'll try to make it better. Now, are they better when you get them back? Reasonable lines can differ. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. but when you look at these kinds of things, a company looks at it and says, any kind of product we make is going to have a threshold variance issue of, of X amount. So even if it's legitimately a problem with the clip or whatever else, uh, if it's at that whatever, half of a tenth of a percent, that's the kind of thing that the law is generally okay with as long as mm-hmm. the people that are affected by that get the redress they need and that there isn't, you know, somebody dies. Uh, there, there, there isn't this kind of thing. Uh, so I do think NVIDIA goes quiet because quiet's a good idea in a lot of circumstances. Mm-hmm. You don't love to have those pictures out there, and certainly you could try to get statements out. But I say this in a lot of PR setting points. One of the things that I do in my practice is talk to companies about how to deal with communications on, on bad news. Uh, and, and quiet is often better even if you want to defend yourself. So NVIDIA going quiet, you know, benefit of the doubt is they're investigating. They're looking at, is there a, is there a 2% problem? I mean, this is a big deal with their product. If it's not there, um, then they can get back and, and what they want to be able to say, and I think I saw it in one of the links that you sent me, they want to be able to say it's it's one in 5,000. It's it's, mm-hmm. it's 50 cases around the world. You know, it's, it's whatever they want to be able to find uh, so that they can go to the internet and say, look, this is what the internet does. The internet can take 50 cases and make it look epidemic. That's, that's, mm-hmm. that's what you can do with this. We want to assure you that it's not the case. And I think anybody that's bought tech has some notion of that. Right. I remember buying my PlayStation Vita and it's like, however many have pixels dead in these corners. And mm-hmm. it's like, uh, it's not great. Uh, but that's that's the kind of thing that you can live with. Now, you didn't burn out your card. You didn't you didn't 
brick your Vita, whatever it is. And that's, that's a, that's a higher level, but it's not damage uh, to other things. It's not life and limb. That, that's where you start to really get into products liability issues. So different jurisdictions can have different thresholds on this. Different jurisdictions can void, you know, warranty limits or, or things that NVIDIA might have tried to write in there. Uh, California in particular has some pretty gnarly products liability kind of public choice equity kind of positions. Uh, but overall, what you described is the kind of thing that's like, that's unfortunate. That doesn't look good for you. That's not what you mm-hmm. want to see out of your product. It seems like it's within the realm of reason for unfortunate events, from my perspective, as described. This Halloween, Reese dressed up as the big bad wolf pretending to be Little Red Riding Hood's grandma, which, to be honest, she actually had mixed thoughts on how much she liked wearing a costume. But, you know, this got me thinking. Only grandmas using Hotmail should be overpaying for Windows keys anymore. There's just no reason to put up with Microsoft's monopolistic pricing as long as you can go to cdkeyoffer.com and their black friday 2022 sales event if you want reasonably priced non-monopolistic microsoft keys whether it's for windows 10 which is easy to get a reasonably priced key from them go to microsoft's website and simply download windows 10 which you can upgrade for free to windows 11 by the way or if you just want to make it easier and just get windows 11 directly or get Microsoft Office 2021 Professional, you should do all of this at cdkeyoffer.com. And if you do, make sure you use the offer code BROKENSILICON for 25% off Windows keys, Moore's Law for 10% off keyboards and mice, and Dyshing for 3% off everything else. cdkeyoffer.com is a long-term sponsor of Moore's Law's Dead for a reason. They keep reliably providing fair pricing on Office software and on Windows operating systems. So this Black Friday season, whether you're looking for Steam, Origin Uplay, or PlayStation keys, Microsoft products, or even some gaming hardware, support Moore's Law is Dead by using offer codes Broken Silicon or Die Shrink at cdkeyoffer.com this Black Friday season. And uh, you know, it was funny, I was preparing the notes for this episode yesterday, and I, I you brought it up. I thought of the Nintendo Joy-Con thing. I was like, you know, is there, and I said this to some people in the Moore's Law at Discord, it's like, I don't think they're going to announce or pro- publicly propose changes to this new connector that they're using themselves. They might behind the scenes push PCIe, I think SIG, the standards group, hey, maybe put out a new standard. And then once SIG puts out a new standard, NVIDIA can go, see, they put out a new standard but we just followed their standard and you don't want to you, add your liability complaint certainly and, the, and if you plug it in correctly it's not our fault but but yes the new standard works even better but we within reasonableness followed this and that's why we're not gonna say we're changing anything and announce anything because then you're this came up on that you know pepsi challenge thing i brought up earlier the second you change what you're saying suggest that you knew something was wrong before and do you think that's possibly true with the joy con thing too like they say that there's a design flaw that i think it's like uh what it makes the it causes drift in the analog sticks a lot of controllers have this issue by the way um and nintendo i think the conspiracy is nintendo wants you to have to buy new joy cons that's always a conspiracy but in hindsight i'm thinking to myself i was yesterday you know maybe nintendo didn't change the design because if they do they have to admit they were wrong They'd certainly rather just some repair of that. them yeah certainly some of that I, 
there's always that question too. You talk about products liability, right? And I, I've mentioned this on my channel, but there's always that question of you can go buy a six hundred dollar. I usually use a, a, a table fan. You can go buy a $600 table fan that's never going to die on you. Or you can go to the Walmart and you can get a $25 table fan and it, it might last you three months. And, and mm -hmm. in general, the law wants you to have the ability to make that choice. Uh, and the, the Joy-Cons, I'm just going to be charitable here. I love my Switch. I really like mm -hmm. Nintendo and Nintendo games. The Joy-Cons are crap. Um, and and they're, they're, they're garbage and they die. I have whatever. I have eight of them. Um, and they're, they're, all, they're all crap. Uh, I, the pro controller is awesome. Highly recommended if you play switch games, uh, but this seems to be Nintendo cheaping out on the whole process. Like it's, it's much more toy. Like it's much more kind of junky. I, I think the biggest issue that they have is like $80 price point for the, for the joy cons feels a little bit like you're being robbed uh, mm -hmm. as it happens. Um, but overall the law looks at that and says, eh, if it lasts a year and it's a year long warranty and it's not high end, it's, you know, yeah. it's, a, it's a piece of plastic for 80 bucks uh, we don't necessarily care that much, but Nintendo does uh, a solid and says, look, well, you know, they first try to say, we're not going to repair them. And then they just, they all take them. It wouldn't surprise me if a couple months later you see that this particular uh, card, you know, with like a little, the little, the little extra clip thing. Uh, if, yeah. they can, if they can figure out how to work that in with the current standard uh, with a, just a little extra. Cause I, I you know, I, to me, it's satisfying. You get the nice, you plug something in, you get the click. That's 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 you're living the dream right there. I don't I don't get the click, I get worried. Uh, yeah. So I, I wouldn't like that either. But yes, it, does it mean it's a potential design flaw? Possibly. What do the damages look like for that? Again, we talk about class action litigators. Can they get something out of that? Maybe not. Right, because as long as Nvidia is willing to repair all cards within a timely fashion that have the issue, and as long as it's not damaging other components, yeah. there's almost not a there there like yeah, what, what are, are you, looking you doing for? in video over yeah that's that's the part and parcel to all lawsuits it's like what are you looking for extra and if if, if we've already done the thing what what are you looking for uh and so yeah it, if you go well this is an unreasonable issue it's like it's one in five thousand it's not unreasonable at all this is electronics yeah there's going to be a certain amount of error on any product that you make in any capacity in any industry mm-hmm but again, I'm sure there's because they're incentivized to yep. lawyers out there looking into it. Give me a case that lit on fire. Give me it. I want yeah, let's an example. Look into it. Let's make it. You know, this is this could happen to anybody. And then you could try to make the argument. You got when you got fire, when you got smoke. So anything could have happened here. We could have lost yeah. the family cat. There, there could have been a drape nearby. We don't know what could have happened. This is completely unacceptable. I mean, this neighborhood's could, mostly made out of wood. We could have burnt down the entire neighborhood. <laughs> That's right. All the way down to City Hall. Yeah. No, I mean, and that's what they get paid for. Like that's that the way the United States legal system is structured is for, you know, that securities, that products liability is to have lawyers going and policing this kind of stuff. Uh, and so somebody look into it. Uh, it. It doesn't sound like a terribly strong case from where I'm sitting from from as you describe it, but they'll look into it. OK, so I do want to let me see here. Move on to a couple more questions sure. from listeners. Uh, and, and these are all still related to NVIDIA. Um, Dino999 writes in, he says, hello, Tom and Richard. A while ago, NVIDIA got hacked and had the source code for DLSS leaked, which I'm sure you're aware of that because you go on Sacred Symbols a lot. And this NVIDIA hack has affected Sony and everyone because for some reason, NVIDIA decided to have the list of all games coming out for five years. It's <laughs> keeping track of the entire game industry. It's absolutely mind blowing to me. But, you know, before we started recording, we talked about DLSS a little bit. I've got another DLSS question. Yeah. The source code for their AI generated algorithm for upscaling was leaked. Like, that's, I mean, God, that's bad. But 
Does how much trouble would a company like AMD or Intel get in if they decided to use the code that leaked from DLSS or something coincidentally similar, like a code that looks very similar but isn't exactly the same, to try to improve their own upscaling technology? Um, is this same as employees who leave and get hired by a rival company? How much of their previous work or knowledge are they able to bring to a new company if they're able to at all? Sure. How much do pat patents really protect a company's work, especially if someone decides to use some parts of code and not all of it so i think there's a few things in there but like yeah. could well, amd and intel use the dlss code number one no. number two what are the limits of him because it's funny a lot of people that work at intel then go to work at amd then apple like what are the limits of using what they worked on before in the future how similar can it look right the legal limits and the practical limits are kind of different right so you, we, we talk about this a lot but there's often questions to talk about the last question as well about what the value is of a software patent as a for instance in general uh, or, or or even a software copyright because all you can really protect is the application as it stands there and if you make small tweaks or if you arrive at the same output or outcome in a different way we know that that's allowed that's really the famous kind of mm -hmm. apple ibm line of discussions uh, and, and so the answer to your question about whether it's useful to be protected is is maybe not. It depends on what you're doing. It depends on how you're going to seek to protect it. I would actually argue this question a little bit differently. If I'm not NVIDIA, I'm actually a little bit concerned about that coincidentally similar because coincidentally similar shouldn't be a problem. Mm -hmm. If you arrive independently at the solution of something that is similar but didn't use the other person's code, shouldn't be a problem. This is how you get into those conversations about you know white boxing things and figuring out what things do and 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 then building them differently on the same kind of concepts. It should be okay. But with this out there now, if you've already, for instance, coded yeah. something and it winds up looking the same, you've got all this like, well, did you have access to the DLSS code? It's like, well, everybody did. Like you, you could have, um, and so. That could potentially become a bigger problem than it otherwise would be. But in the overall here is unfortunately going to be dependent on the jurisdictions, right? So in general, you're allowed to, as an employer, say, um, you, you, can't, you can't bring our trade secrets. You can't use our stuff. It's going to be treated confidentially. That's, all, that's allowed. A lot of places, a lot of jurisdictions also have a non-compete in place to kind of cover that more. To say mm -hmm. it gets so dicey to have an employee work at a competitor even though they've agreed to this, we're not going to take our trade secrets. We're going to, you're not going to have any copies of the material. You got the know-how, you've got the internal stuff. We can't police. We don't, we don't have that authority yet. And I don't think we want people to have that authority yet, uh, that we just say you can't compete, but there are plenty of jurisdictions, most predominantly California, where mm -hmm. a lot of this gets done that say, no, non we don't like non-competes, um, for employees. And so you have this kind of crossover and there's always a concern that somebody's going to use the secret sauce, uh, and essentially, rebuild something on the other side that is copyright infringing patent infringing whatever it might be uh, and you see those you see those lawsuits you see those kind of fights so the answer is in many jurisdictions outside of california in the united states you can put it on compete in and, you, and in tech you don't need to have them be that long because chances mm -hmm. are things have moved on um and uh in california where a lot of this is done you do always have the the problem of all right, we need to see what the, uh, the opposition, the rival in the industry is making, how they made it. Oh, we think there might be something issue, an issue there, reverse engineer it, try to go figure out what's happening um, with those kinds of things. And it's, I don't think it ever goes away from a kind of corporate espionage tech situation, especially in, in California. Um, and that's kind of, that is California's choice to say we want uh, kind of freedom of movement of labor to be more important than trade secrets and, and kind of corporate intellectual property rights. And, and that's a kind of value proposition. I'm, I'm not sitting one way or the other on that. Uh, Michigan's the opposite, even though 
you know, Michigan has the automakers. They have a lot of engineering. They have a lot of tech that they're building all the time. Uh, Michigan has non-competes all over the place. Yeah, I remember I worked at General Motors and for a couple of companies later that worked with them. And there was a lot about like, oh, you can't go work for Ford now, yep. though, just to be clear. Of course, eventually I um, had a podcast, so I wasn't competing with anyone. But <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the dream. Yeah, so exactly. You have to, if you're talking about a non-compete in any jurisdiction, I can speak to Michigan the best. It has to be limited in scope to what you would actually know, right? It's supposed to be matching the, the corporate information you got. So it's probably limited in geography, probably limited in time, probably limited in business type. Um, to say you can't have a non-compete that eliminates somebody's ability to, to, you know, feed the family. Uh, right. so you have to be careful of all those things in California. You basically just can't have them at all. Mm-hmm. You can't, can't have non-compete. You can absolutely require that confidentiality. You're not going to take your trade secrets, but you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It's in my brain. What are you going to do? <laughs> well, so yeah, I guess AMD already has a competitor to do. Well, some would say it's not, but I would say it is a competitor to DLSS called FSR, and it's pretty close in quality and it's open source. It actually works on NVIDIA cards and AMD cards and Intel cards. Anyone can use it. Yeah. You're saying like that's the button if, I hit on my Steam Deck, I believe. Yes. Yeah. It's been, <laughs> actually, it's been huge for the Steam Deck. Actually, it's used in the consoles now, too, nice. to boost frame rates. And it's, you know, you be, you kind of get a free frame rate boost and you mostly, let's say you the image quality loss you get, because I have this 4090 here that's like so strong. I was playing the new Call of Duty maxed out in 4K all the way turned up at 120. And the I can't GPU even said, imagine. Well, the GPU said it was at like 70%, 50% usage. And I was at 4K 120 frames a second. Everything turned up. And I was like, well, let me see DLSS. I actually don't need it because my GPU is idling actually running this game. Yeah. But, um, uh, and I could see like a 1% difference. I could like the fire look maybe slightly blurrier in the distance. Like, well, the software stuff is amazing and I, and I, I love it to death, but in terms of like, I don't know the tech specifics here. So I I will leave that to you. But even if FSR and DLSS had kind of a similar outcome mm -hmm. or strategy or notion about how they get to where they're getting, that's not protectable. Uh, mm-hmm. copyright patent that they don't protect concepts. They don't protect systems or ideas. They protect like the actual methods of getting there, the specifics. Uh, and so you can always be like, you could look at something like DLSS when it's invented and say, Oh, that's, those are some interesting thoughts. That's an interesting notion. We're going to, mm-hmm. we're going to build it differently and, and we're going to get to the same place. And that's, that's how tech works. And they kind of have, but now, yeah. the, but then the DLSS source code comes out. Now you're saying it's frankly, Easy for AMD to look at that and go, oh, that's what we were missing at that too. I, I would never, ever accuse any yeah. of these corporations of doing such a thing, uh, but they will undoubtedly look at the source code and say, hey, what, what do we learn? Mm-hmm. Sure. So uh, we'll go down in history, I think, as one of the worst for the company's hacks of all time. Is that NVIDIA one? It um, certainly seems like a lot of info, although I'm looking forward to Final Fantasy Tactics. So thanks, NVIDIA. <laughs> Uh, all right, let me move on to like one more sure. uh, NVIDIA related thing. So Swiggles writes in and he says, hey, Tom and Richard, do you think the frames generated by DLSS 3 count as advertisable frame rate increases? The frames are not accurate enough to stand alone. If you would have a game that looked like these frames by itself would look terrible, but they do achieve a similar level of visual fluidity. The, uh, the similar example I immediately think of is the bulldozer litigation case against AMD. Where we got into a definition of what a core is. The definition of a frame, though, as a general, as the definition of a CPU core, do you see as a viable lawsuit? Thank you for your time, and I hope this question has less DLSS 
three generation in it. <laughs> right. So, and I explained this to you before we started. Yeah. NVIDIA looks at a future frame at the time and then a previous frame averages them with an AI algorithm, spits out a dolly painting that I hope looks like real life. And that's how they try to give you free frames without, you know, running into any hardware bottlenecks. They're just giving you more frames on screen. But because they have to use a future frame, you're delaying rendering or showing the frame. So you're really not getting a higher latency. And sometimes like they showed Spider-Man remastered on PC, like sometimes Spider-Man will be walking off and his logo will be weird or there'll yeah. be like a glow around him. Or my favorite thing is switching from third to first person in either F1 racing or flight simulator. And if you can imagine an AI generating a frame and it has you in third person and the second you split the first, it does this bizarre amalgamation where it just like shoots white all over the screen quick. <laughs> But technically, the monitor is displaying 200 frames now, not 100 frames per second. Mm -hmm. It's showing 200 frames. Do you think there's room there for consumers to argue that they are ad false advertising because they're not actually rendering those frames? I think the biggest risk that you have is in those kind of like comparisons uh, that we talked about a little bit in the pre-show where... It, you might have somebody deciding on what card to get or what technology to get based on this flat number. And mm -hmm. it's not like for like that. It's, it's not, you know, 60 screenshotable screens that you'd love to have on your desktop. Uh, it is, it is something different from that. And certainly as a lawyer and lawyers are risk averse by nature, folks that haven't worked with us before. Um, certainly as a lawyer, I'd probably want to have, uh, you know, an asterisk, uh, you know, that says something along the lines of, uh, you know, in in interpolated frames uh, included. Still try to get that number up there, but with with a statement there that says something along the lines along those lines. Uh, but if the effect is such that that players get a better situation, and you talk about latency, so that's kind of an open question. Um, right. I think you should probably still get credit for it, uh, even though uh, it's a little bit different than the way other people are counting frames. So it's, it's a complicated question. That I wouldn't be super worried, like if, if I'm in-house counsel and somebody's like, oh my God, are they going to sue us for this? I wouldn't be, that, it's not what I would consider a high level risk mm -hmm. um, for what it is that you're doing. Uh, but certainly, I'd at least have the conversation if you're going to go out there in a magazine ad or a website ad and say 240 frames per second or whatever it is that this thing does. Uh, I, I would be cautious about that and I would probably have that asterisk there. Right? We don't want to accidentally sell Harrier jets. Um, right. And, and so... Well, what they usually show is like light green and then dark green for the rest of the bar. And they're like, dark green is the extra frames from DLSS 3. That's I would consider that sufficient. I, I would consider that sufficient for, you want a reasonable person to be able to say, hey, okay, this is the true, if we're comparing these things without this software, this is what it is as a card. And then because we have our magic software, which we work on, like that's a legitimate value add for a lot of people, um, you can get to this. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I, to me, that seems sufficient. And I wouldn't be worried about a lot of a legal action that would that would keep me up at night. Yeah. Well, as someone who's not a lawyer and has no reason to have an opinion, I agree with you. <laughs> um, but what I would say is I do worry, though, for consumers, because if you're AMD who's working on their own thing, they're calling it fluid fluid frames or something. Yeah. You know, where does this arms race end? Do we get into a situation where you just put this little like five watt chip on top of the graphics card that just quadruples frames on? Now I can just say it's a thousand frames a second. That's my only concern is at what point I, I don't know if this can be litigated, though. I think consumers might just have to be smart enough to know in five years that all these companies have three ways of pretending there's more frames on screen, even if they're 
significantly lower quality because why i mean if it lets you argue you have a 1000 frames per second graphics card why not do that i'm reminded a little bit of uh when the the last xbox generation the last playstation generation went to their pro models mm-hmm. and a lot of them had 2160 checkerboard rendering yeah uh, they basically like half of it's not rendered but they have a yeah. the playstation had dedicated silicon for filling in the gaps accurately and you could get some really cool especially still images out of that because it's legitimately 4k but my reco- my recollection of this was in movement it's just a little bit more sparkle a little yeah. bit more uh extra that you're like okay That's so it's similar not- with fsr and dlss sometimes yeah yeah so I, I think there has to be an expectation of somebody at this high end of, a, of an enthusiast kind of space has at least a little bit of a responsibility to be like, okay, as long as I reference that this is, you know, this is the frame rate with a DLSS, or this is the frame rate checkerboard rendered, or this is the frame rate, whatever, that it's incumbent upon the purchaser to go and say, okay, what does that mean? Um, and, and, and look at it from that perspective. I can't promise that there's there's plenty of like false advertising and products litigation cases that are like, I look at and say, uh, all right. (laughs) But I I do think that overall there is a certain amount of, yeah, you you can look at it. And if they actually say it's this technology doing this, if you'd have two separate shades of green, they're doing enough to say that there's some kind of distinction between what we're talking about. I, I certainly thought that with the PlayStation side of things, you know, the fact that they said checkerboarded, I, I knew what that meant. I was like, I might go for that version. I might not because they usually give you boxes and things like that. But um, that that was a different image than a pure 2160. Uh, do you have a Steam Deck then? I do. Yeah. And so you probably turn on FSR. Then it's been on the entire time. Yeah. It seems like magic. <laughs> it, it, it's yeah. It, it is funny to think like if you look at it from a more positive perspective, like my example, like I've got this like $2,000 graphics card that I use for work. So uh, let me tell you, if this wasn't my job and I wasn't editing videos, I would not have that graphics card, guys. Um, But, I, I, you know, it is funny to think of how it's almost like I'm becoming like an audiophile, though. Like I looked at Call of Duty with DLSS on and off, and I was like, I can see the difference. Dan, the co-host of the news episode this next week, he's like, I don't think I can. I was like, I can. It's like very slight, but I can. It's almost like we're becoming audiophiles where your Steam Deck, you turn on a bunch of things for fake frames, it works, but if you want the lossless audio, the lossless video, it's going to cost you a lot, but it's kind of just common sense for these companies to pull as many tricks as they can to get this to work on much weaker hardware. Yeah, I think that's the way. And, and I've seen that throughout, again, playing mostly on consoles on my side. A, a dynamic resolution was one of the oh, yeah. best things that they ever came up with because for the most part, you don't really care if you keep that smoothness and it, it does descend into a particle mess for a second, right? Playing Doom or whatever. I don't think the Switch can function without dynamic resolution because it likes to take things down to like 240p or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I, you know, I thought that was much smarter than the kind of frame rate hitches, and I've enjoyed that since they since they basically developed that conceptually. Uh, so I'm I'm always okay with that, but I'm never on the bleeding edge like you are. I'm always trying to find that value proposition of where can I get the most for for the for the most reasonable amount of money in the middle. All right, so I guess if you have time, I'll, I'll throw one more reader mail out there. I don't know how much we can really speak to this because okay. I think it is a little complex, but I, I brought it up to you before we started. So Carbon Cry writes in and he says, the whole structure of a recent IBM Global Foundries deal, and the subsequent Global Foundries on semi deal seem wild to me. Global Foundries seem like they mastered this deal. They got paid $1.5 billion by IBM take the fabs off their hands this was mainly in malta and the east fish kill and then global foundries just turned around 
and flipped that fab, which was like one-fourth to one-third of Malta, to OnSemi for $430 million. So basically, Global Foundries bought a big modern fab in Malta and made almost $2 billion getting it. How is this a legal question? Well, IBM is suing Global Foundries over this whole situation. Here's the most recent news on the case. I have a link there and the link in the description for everybody. So yeah, this is a wild case, Carbon Cry. I agree. I didn't know about this. Like, I guess it's. I'll ask a very simple question, though. Like, does IBM have a point suing Global Foundries? Because it, in in some ways, it's almost like I don't know what you want, IBM. You're the one who made the deal, or I don't know. Yeah, well, so it's a contract type deal. So I, I don't have any more information than this little clip that you uh, you sent over as the summary. But in the second paragraph here, you can kind of hear what's happening. That they're claiming fraudulent inducement in making the deal to transfer its semiconductor business for a billion and contribute another $1.5 billion as part of a technology alliance. That's what we would frame in the law as a strategic deal, that it's not just financial, you're not just flipping assets, you're not just moving things around, you're supposed to be partners in something. Mm-hmm. IBM seeks that damages for that whole deal and alleges that the buyer fraudulently misrepresented that it had a corporate commitment to do the chips and it was just going to flip the assets. So when you sign up a big deal, Uh, and certainly billions of dollars is pretty darn big, you're going to have a document that has what we call reps and warranties and covenants. And and reps and warranties are promises about what it is that you're you're buying, uh, what it is that you're selling, and the covenants are promises that you have. Uh, And so uh, it sounds, just reading this, that IBM might have a claim because there's actual language in the contract that says that there's some kind of commitment that we're going to do this with you, it's going to be strategic, and we're not just going to flip the asset. If that isn't the case, it becomes a much harder case to win for IBM, not impossible, because mm-hmm. we have an overall kind of good faith and fair dealing notion when we talk about contract law in the US, that is, you aren't just going to do things that are completely outside the notion, the concept presented in a contract, that we we ascribe to each party good faith, and we ascribe to them fair dealing, because nobody on earth can write a contract, can write words, can write provisions right. that can defend against any possible thing that a bad actor could do. So the courts have an equitable power to say, no reasonable person in this context, we're not looking at the contract, which is the biggest problem for us talking about this right now, uh, but no reasonable person reading this contract would assume that this was the outcome. And so we're going to, we're essentially, it looks like they want to rescind it. Uh, you know, that they, they transferred a billion in business, they transferred a 1.5 billion uh, in the technology lines. They, they want their money back. Um, right. So that, that looks to be like what they're going to try to do here. There's some other language around it being revived. This particular snippet of news is from April of this year. I don't know whether anything's happened since then, but generally speaking, no. This kind of stuff takes a long, long time. Uh, And so this kind of deal, just reading these paragraphs makes some amount of sense to me that they're effectively claiming a contract breach. That Mm -hmm. as part of the sales document, some promise, some rep, some warranty was violated as part of this, uh, or that the other side was acting as a bad faith actor. Right, so... It's like, oh, we made like 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 global founders couldn't make the argument, oh no, we were good faith, but then we had this other deal come up and it would have been a bad decision to do that, to not go with this other deal to make even more money. I think then IBM could go, sure, so give us half the profits. Like <laughs> yeah, possibly. And you could write those kinds of things in. You can actually have a contract term that says something like a what we call a clawback or something along those lines. If you do flip it, uh, you know, you're gonna share it with us. Uh, and you can even write it as 70-30 or something to try to disincentivize that. You can do those kinds of things, but if you have no expectation of it whatsoever, it's kind of hard to just anticipate every possible thing that could happen in the universe, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I mean, uh, that's pretty much all I have 
here for us to discuss. I mean, I don't know if there's, you know, the the floor is yours. If there was anything else you wanted to talk about or any context you wanted to add to anything we discussed. No, I think this is actually a great kind of overall uh, view of all the things that can happen in transactional law, right? We, we talked about patents. We talked about intellectual property protections. We talked about uh, securities and and material omissions and lies. We talked about products liability. And heck, we even we even threw in good faith and fair dealing on a contract term. We basically covered like four of maybe the five primary pillars I cover on virtual legality every day. So this was a lot of fun. Uh, but I, I have nothing to add on this other than the fact that technology continues to be a wellspring for awesome legal discussions that I never would have anticipated before I started doing this. Yeah, I mean, again, it's a lot of people start YouTube channels because you're sitting there, you see people talking about something, and you're like, I can speak to that. And then it just happens five times, and you're like, I'm, I'm going to make a video. I'm going I'm to speak to this. Someone has to, someone needs to talk about this. And <laughs> you realize, like, you, how good, such an asset to have someone who does play games, who does understand games, you know, who has a Switch, or, I mean, who has a, a Steam Deck that turns on FSR so you actually understand the context of what you're talking about. That's the and magic it is, button, yeah. <laughs> it's really nice to have someone like you out there talking about it and adding context that's better than what we would usually see, like the comment section of some... You know, I legitimately website. love gaming, and I know that comes as a shock to some people. I still get the occasional comments, it's like, you're not a real gamer. It's like, ah, okay. Well, I All mean, right. what, when is that going to become stop being a insult i wonder because it's like you don't really like movies it's like maybe people said that in the 50s <laughs> but it's like know. dude everyone watches movies now everyone plays video games a little bit like what are you talking i don't know about? I, it's so funny because i can i have stories about the, you know the senior partners taking me into my office and said what, what is this because you, you know you, when you when you sign up for a new job a lot of times hr sends around like a paragraph about you and i had made a joke about writing writing an essay about everything i learned in life i learned from playing you know video games and like i had senior partners with a closed door meeting being like you know, you can't play games at the office. I was like, what are you talking about? What? Are yeah, and I, I guess I don't like know. How for old, madness. I don't know. Yeah, saying. I guess I don't know how old you are, but it's like 40s. Yeah. So you're a man in his 40s, meaning, yeah, born like, like, what is it then? Like 70s or 80s or mm-hmm. something. It's crazy. You like video games. Isn't that like the typical person your age probably does a little? I, not it's at just law. Funny. Not, seriously, not at law. Like that, 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 that was not. That was seen as a real weirdness uh, when I was working, and uh, that was okay by me uh, because you know that helped me get into software as a service contracts and work with some of the stuff that I wanted to work with at both the big law firm and then at my own place in 2016. And so that's worked out. But I will tell you, it was like uh, this guy. I, you, we don't know about this guy. You, you know, you need to be focused on your work, and you can't just be playing games. It's like, I, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I won't. I don't understand because everybody else is like. I enjoy golf or whatever. It's like, yeah, yeah it's, it's fine. I'm not yeah, assuming I'm not actually assuming these people right now. Sometimes these people have a little putt putt thing in their office too. So why are you insult? Like you think I can't play video games at work. It seems like you're playing golf at work. What I can't about? promise. I didn't have a 3ds that I was messing around with when it came out and I had sent to the office. I can't, I can't promise that that didn't happen. <laughs> well, if they're allowed to putt in their office, I don't see why you shouldn't be. But yeah, no, that is funny to think like if someone's like, Oh, well, anyone who plays games, they must be, they must have Cheetos on them at all times and Mountain Dew and they can't stop playing. It's like, that's yeah, just a hobby like anything else. You it's do. the nature know. law because law is pretty, pretty long winded in, in arriving at technological solutions. While I was there, there were still people that didn't have computers in their office. Uh, so, uh, when? So this would have been 2006, let's say. That's weird. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I, I'm our, telling you the truth on this. Dictaphones, no computers. Yeah, all, all, all sorts of stuff in law. 
All right. Well, if anyone wants to, you know, hear more of this type of a discussion, you're always putting out content and there's certainly, like we discussed in the beginning, endless content to discuss. Uh, go to your, your YouTube channel, Hoglaw. I'll have a link in the description uh, for everybody to find it quickly. And I want to thank you for coming on. And Absolutely. Thanks for having know, me. As usual, I'll do the whole spiel. You know, thanks everybody for listening. Remember, you can subscribe to Broken Silicon on any podcast app. Give us a review. That really helps. Subscribe to Moore's Laws Dead on YouTube. Ring the bell button. Like videos. Play them on loop. Tell your friends to play them on loop 10 times. Tell them to like them 100 Go times. Go to sleep with it in your ear. Exactly. <laughs> Let it keep auto-playing. And uh, if you have the extra money, consider supporting us on uh, Patreon. You know, that's where you get ad-free content, the ability to ask people like code questions, and uh, so many other things. And uh, again, thanks everybody for listening. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. This podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law's Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. However, I don't do this alone. Moore's Law's Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and special assistance by Carbon Cry. Find all of our information, including the information of sponsors you can support, at www.moreslawsdead.com. If you would like to send fan mail or hardware to us, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead at P.O. Box 60632 in Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37206. And speaking of fans, patrons are what makes Moore's Laws Dead content possible. The aging business model of spamming ads all over the content is dying. The future of media will be built on fans paying for the content they actually want to exist. And so if you have the extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, access to the Moore's Laws Dead Discord, full of like-minded people who would love to meet you and talk to you about computer hardware. I am one of them. Additionally, higher tiers get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the entire back catalog of Flyover State's podcasts and other projects, Moore's Laws that is done, and thanks in the credits of videos and other perks as well. And hey, if you can't afford to support us, please do share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media, Reddit, and forums. And give Broken Silicon a five-star review on Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast app. All of this really does help so much. And if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, hire Tom for consulting, or are a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its patrons supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Brad Medlin, Drita Full, A.V., Anthony Griffith, Greg Pataki, Mohamed Akwari, Brett Jones, Aaron Close, Little Jeremy, Jan Renner, Daniel Hyde, Shredbird, Brian Riggleman, Dr. Foreman, Sam Miller, Deke, Thomas Rupp, The Mechanical Philosopher, Terrence Herod, SNES Chalmers, Tom Bailey, Greg T. Wachick, Andrew S., Frank Zielinski, Daniel D., MJV1, Eric Jackson, Justice Brennan, Sammy Good, Valcom Alev, The Boss Haas, Nicholas Buckner, Spamton G. Spamton, Jonathan, Lord Starstream, General Drips, Blake, Franco Frederick, Matthew Lazier, Jensen Wang, Nathan Moses, Aziris, Gregory S. Hacker, Dominic Cock, Jake Dude, 23. 
Jake Martin, Cameron, Christian Lavoy, HardFullRoom.com, Original Ross, Slicky, Lance Bassler, David Cowden, Ricky Tan, Chris Frey Butler, Gigi Ziggy, Sarcastic, Seven Hart, David Sebastian, Meat and Pork Stew, Tim Robb, Luis Correa, Ian Clifford, Jesse Jess Kowiak, Travis Gooding, Holden Mobley, Nanny, Chris Rich, Deepest Learners, Mad, Zuzu Taylor, Stephen Coates, Michael McGee, Chuck Glidden, Sammy Malas, Greg Atrini, Patrick Crow, Amy Will Chief, Brett Summers, Milton, Stephen Dick, Tommy, Kunden, Brucha, Mark Mitchell, McDaffy, Delmain Peterson, James Anderson, Marshall Pierce, Mark Raidmaker, Dave Schultz, Studio Boy 08, Halbuma, Nerithiel, Matthew Landavaso, Stefan, Colatic, Henry Zhang, Judson N, Brendan O'Connell, The Grid, Michelle Pell, D31337, Antics, Joseph Kelly, Noah Nicoela, Hexapuma, Chrysantine, Jerem Ferreira, Mayor, Keith Moore, Kita, Abdul, Kadir, Precision, DNA Tech, Nicholas, Alexandra, John O'Shea, Royce Meyer, Charles Russell, Regina Ari, Slushpot, Teak Autumn, Jackson Miller, JSMMH, Neith Rizink, Mean Dean, Cal, Andre Jacques, Gaiman Since Reagan, Jeff Sedler, Jordan Simkovic, Loophole 35, Windstar, William Welpy, James I. Raider, Corey Leonard, Nalima, John Shin, Justin Bustle, Kelvin, Austin Haggerty, Roger Davies, Shea, William Leaked, Corey Chappelle, Evan Dingle, C2, John Iverson, Samuel Park, Aaron, The Eternal Dreamers, Jansen, Angima, Mark Central, Derek Lambing, Michael Forrest and Forrest, Im Sigung, Robert Davidson, Space Channel 5, Beer Motor, and of course, thank you to Zahara for the music.